Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, where we're looking at the life and the teachings of Jesus and seeing how that impacts the lives of imperfect people like you and me. And we are in Season 1, Episode 31. We're still in John Chapter 11, looking at this great miracle, the raising of Lazarus. We're doing it in three parts. Uh, First part, verses 1 through 17, was last week. We're going to pick it up in verse... 18 this week, and then we'll finish it off in the next podcast uh, in the future. So just want to say as we launch into this topic today that I'm going to be using the outline and the thoughts of Ray Stedman, who has been a biblical mentor to me and has helped me a lot with the understanding of Scripture, and I just want to acknowledge his influence today. You know, one of the strange delusions of our day is that somehow through better science, better nutrition, better Botox, we can conquer all disease, eliminate or drastically reduce the aging process. Now, it's true that people do live longer than they did 200 years ago, and we're grateful for that. But it's also true uh, that science has virtually eliminated certain diseases that were once, you know, great killers amongst humanity. I mean, hardly anyone dies of tuberculosis or polio or diphtheria or smallpox anymore. But on the other hand, deaths due to heart disease, diabetes, cancer, etc., they're still skyrocketing. COVID has shown us how vulnerable we really are. I mean, just this microscopic virus, it's killed millions around the globe. It's threatened our entire species. The harsh reality is that we don't really want to face it today, is that in spite of all our apparent progress, the death rate remains exactly what it has always been, a flat 100%. I mean, you can jog, you can eat vegan, you can watch your weight, and someday you will end up the healthiest corpse that ever died. Someday. Death is still the master of our race, and there's nothing that can be done about it. Or is there? In the story of the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which we've come to in this section of the Gospel of John, we have an account of the eyewitnesses to the ability of Jesus of Nazareth to reverse this iron grip of death. Although Lazarus had been dead for four days, Jesus turned that all around and brought him back to life, not by painstaking medical research, not by voodoo or magic incantations, but by a simple word of command, because he was and he is the master of death and also the master of creation. I didn't explore this theme at all in today's uh, podcast, but it made me think of when Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, was involved in the creation of all things. Genesis 1 says that God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke, and in the same way, Jesus speaks life into Lazarus, as we'll see in just a few minutes. The story, as you may remember, revolves around a family in Bethany, Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus, and he's the one who died. Last episode, we looked at the prelude to this encounter as Jesus and his disciples, they get word of Lazarus's illness and how Jesus waited and did not rush off to save his friend and how Jesus allowed Martha and Mary to go through their time of terrible grief before he even arrives on scene. Now, this podcast picks it up there. And we're going to look at how the story is told in three simple movements, beginning with verse 17, each of which involves one of these three members of the family. In the first movement, it's Martha's faith that's challenged. In the second, Mary's grief is shared, while in the third, Lazarus' life is restored. The first division is found, verses 17 
through 27. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said, I, I believe you that you are the Messiah the Son of God who has come into the world. So John shines his spotlight first upon Martha, who has left the many mourners who came out from Jerusalem to help the family grieve. Death was a community event in those days, and evidently Mary and Martha and Lazarus were well-known, probably popular. And so there were many mourners there, uh, just across the Mount of Olives from the city of Jerusalem. Hearing that Jesus is on the way, Martha goes to meet him. Now, this is very characteristic of her, as we've talked about. She's a woman of action. Mary, on the other hand, is more to herself, more introverted by nature. Uh, so she waits at home. But Martha goes right out, greets Jesus with a phrase that must have been on all of their lips when, Je when Lazarus was sick. How many times must they have said, oh, if Jesus were only here? They had said it so many times that it comes automatically to Martha's mouth when she meets him. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, I don't believe this is a word of reproach from Martha. Martha's not saying, Lord, why didn't you come sooner? We sent for you. If you'd responded, we wouldn't be in this pickle. It's clear from the account that she realizes that the message did not reach him until Lazarus was already dead. There was no way he could have responded and gotten there before Lazarus died. And nothing is really said about this delay, this intentional two extra days that Jesus waited. Martha's word is not one of reproach. It's more one, I think, of regret. Lord, I wish you could have been here, because if you had, my brother would not have died. I think that's more the sense of it. Because she goes on to say, but even now, even now, Whatever you ask of God, he will give it to you. Mary asks at this point, I mean, many ask at this point, well, what does she expect Jesus to do? What is, she, is it that she wants for him? Some commentators say that she really did expect Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead, pointing to her words, you know, even now. But I think they may seem to miss the point because, of course, the very next word of Jesus is, your brother will rise again. If Martha had any idea that that would happen right now, I mean, right at that moment, she would have said, how wonderful, Lord, that's exactly what I expected you to do now that you've come. But she doesn't say that. What she says is, yeah, I know, I know, I, I read the lesson. He'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. No, Martha is not looking for an immediate resurrection of her brother. What then is she looking for from Jesus? What does she mean by the words, even now, what have you asked? God will give it to you. I think we have to conclude that she is looking for his comfort, for the release that God can give to our hearts when they're just 
you know, saddened and grieved and torn with loss. You know, anticipating the loneliness and the emptiness of the days ahead, God can give marvelous inner peace when we know the assurance of eternal life in his presence. And many have testified to that. And this is what I think Mary, or I mean Martha, is asking for. Even now, Lord, even now that he's gone. See, there is so much God can give us at a time like this. As we listen in to this conversation, we can see that Martha's face is placed right where ours often is, in what she thought would happen, not in who Jesus is, but in what she thought Jesus would do. How many times have you said to yourself, I know God has worked this way in the past, and I know he will work that way again in the future, but today, well, this is not the day of miracles. Have you ever felt that way? In the daily grind of life, our world seems to be so barren of miracles that we think, well, those days are gone, or maybe they'll come again, but God's not working like that now, and he'll work that way again, though ultimately, you know, this is Martha's faith. She has a strong faith in the future, and that's a good thing. She has a faith that at the resurrection of the last day, yes, the program of God is certain. He will be resurrected. Her theology is accurate, but she has forgotten that God is right there with her right now. That's what Jesus brings to her attention. Notice how he shifts the focus back from the program to his person in the words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Even in the grammar of this passage, the focus is on the first word, I. I am the resurrection and the life. Some think this is the most powerful of all the I am statements Jesus gives us in this gospel. I am the resurrection and the life. Me, personally. Jesus is saying that wherever he is, anything can happen. God can do anything if Jesus is there. Anything that God ever did or can do, it can happen at the moment Jesus is there, wherever he is. Anything God ever did can and do happen. This is where our faith ought to be fastened, not on the theological program of resurrection sometime in the future, but on the person who is powerful enough to bring that resurrection. That's where Martha's faith needed to be. A phrase in the, a phrase in the sixth chapter of the book of Hebrews comes to mind. That chapter has caused a lot of controversy as to whether the people under discussion are believers or not, people who've fallen away back and forth. Not going into that, but in one of the phrases describing the people of that day, it says, they have tasted the powers of the age to come. That's Hebrews 6.5. There is an age yet to come, and yet here are certain people who have already tasted of the powers, I think meaning the miracles, the signs, and the wonders of that coming age. I don't know what you think of when you hear that phrase, the age to come. Some Christians who are focused on certain interpretations of the second coming of Christ, they expect the age to come to be a millennium, uh, the kingdom of God ruling on earth literally for a thousand years, a visible God kingdom on earth for a thousand years. There are others who see the millennium passage as a future event, you know, that it'll be something that will happen not on this earth literally. There are those who think that the kingdom is our job to enact that the kingdom of God is today and we bring about the kingdom of God through good works and better politics, that we can bring about the kingdom of God by our efforts. 
Others kind of transform the kingdom into entirely an inner attitude, saying that it's that is the eternal state which is to come. But whichever position you take, what Jesus is saying is the events of the last days, they can happen anytime, anywhere the Lord of time chooses. And that's why my position would be we are already in the last days. We've been in the last days since Jesus' ascension into heaven. Because anything, God can do anything now that he chooses to do. He's saying, Martha, don't talk about the last days That'll happen. God's program will be carried out, but never sell short the Son of God. When I'm involved in a situation, then you can expect God to work and work in his own way and in his own time. And that's here and now. Notice how Jesus covers all our fears in these powerful words. Two groups of believers are mentioned first. He says, he who believes in me, though he die. And there he refers to those who have already died uh, those who have already died, those whose bodies are now dissolving in the dust. All of us perhaps have relatives and dear ones who are in that category. They've already died. There is a word of hope addressed to those who are left behind. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I once read a message by D.L. Moody in which he said, One day you will hear that D.L. Moody of Northfield, Massachusetts is dead. Don't you believe it? In that day, I will be more alive than I've ever been before. And that, in a sense, is what Jesus is saying here for this first group. Though they die, through death seizes somebody you love. If that person has believed in me, yet they shall be living. And what a hope that brings. And then there's the second group. Whoever lives and believes in me. That is talking about thus. We're not dead. We've not yet passed from this earthly scene. Well, what's our future? The word of Jesus to us is, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Actually, the Greek phrasing here is very strong. It literally says, he will never, ever die forever. It kind of repeats it three times. He will pass from this life, yes, through what to all appearances, it seems like an ending. Death seems like an ending, but there will be no darkness, no loneliness, no separation, no limitation of power person who dies will pass immediately into the new life. And when we die, we pass immediately into the presence of Christ. This is what the great hope that the, caused the Apostle Paul to shout out kind of in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, Oh, death, where is your sting? It's 1 Corinthians 15, 55. To the grim reaper, the feared Lord of human life, the master of all our destinies, Paul cries, Where is your sting? Where is your victory? For those who believe, that victory is a defeat. I mean, it's gone. Notice that Jesus twice states the condition, he who believes in me. To those who have had the opportunity to hear his word and receive his offer of grace, he extends this marvelous promise. But to those who refuse it, to those who do not believe it, there is nothing ahead. This is what Jesus says. I, you know, I didn't write this. This only needs to be, there only needs to be one way to go through death if it's available to all. And that's what the gospel is. It's available to all. Light from God is streaming down all the time to everybody everywhere. And I believe God judges people according to the light that they have received. If someone has never, ever even heard of the name of Jesus, then how could a just God judge them according to the standard that they have to make a personal confession in Jesus in order to be saved? That just doesn't make any sense to me. 
If you follow the light you've been given, that you already have, dim as it may be, although it may mean nothing but the, the light of nature, it leads to more light until last people will know the way to God. That way is always through Christ, even if his name is not known. So Martha responds to this uh, very nobly. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are. She mentions three things. The Messiah, meaning the Christ. The Son of God, meaning the divine child of God. The one who is the deity himself. And he who is coming into the world. In other words, the predicted one of the prophets. Can't ask for a greater response than that. She says, yes, Lord, I am with the program. And right now, I'm not going to focus on that. I'm not going to focus on how you're going to do it. I'm just going to focus on you. You are who you claim to be. And with this, this, John turns then to the second movement of the story, to Mary and her relationship with Jesus, verses 28 to 37. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. And when Mary heard this, she got up and quickly got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at a place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the womb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her were also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Though Mary greets Jesus with the same words as Martha, she does so in a totally different atmosphere. John stresses here that when Jesus saw her, she was weeping, and all those who came to her were weeping. When Martha came to him, she was a little bit more stoical and resigned. She was, you know, the pragmatic person. Maybe she was able to express her grief in a different way. There was no sign that she was weeping or broken up, uh, though she must have grieved inside tremendously. Martha's faith needed to be stretched, but when Mary comes, she's overwhelmed with her emotions, her feelings. Her heart is broken. She is torn with grief and pain. It's obvious that she's suffering tremendously from a deep sense of loss of her dear brother. So Jesus' reaction here is highly significant. It says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. It's difficult to capture in English what the Greek text is saying here. The word for deeply moved in spirit is a word that only occurs three or four times in the New Testament. In each place, it's associated with a sense of indignation, of kind of red-hot anger. It's a word that the Greeks used to describe a horse who is snorting with anger and trying to shake the bit in his mouth. Jesus is indignant, snorting with anger. He is moved with anger, and it showed in his face. It says he troubled himself. We don't often focus on the anger of Jesus. You know, modern people, we like to characterize Jesus as all butterflies and puppy dogs. Anger doesn't fit that image, but we see it so plainly displayed here. He showed it by what he did and the way he looked. John emphasizes that his reaction to the deep grief of Mary and her friends is one of sharp 
anger. Well, why? What is Jesus angry at? He's not angry at the people who came, as some suggest. Some of the commentators suggest that he was angry at the professional mourners, and I've spoken about that practice before. I think the cultural norm of hiring professional mourners to surround a home and weep and wail and carry on, thinking that the more mourners you have and the louder they wail, it means the more you actually love the deceased person. And that's still a cultural thing in some parts of the world, in India and Sri Lanka and other countries. But I don't think that's what has Jesus angry here. I remember when I visited the genocide museums in the country of Rwanda. Some of the exhibits are just stacks and stacks of human bones. So difficult to even look at and imagine the horror of that brutal purge. I don't think you can help but feel anger about the horror of that, the injustice, the depth of human depravity that would enable people to engage in such violence. I mean, I was angry at the terrible injury that sin causes. There's something like that here only carried to a far greater extreme that our Lord is feeling. Jesus is angry that the liar, the murderer, the evil one has struck again. Jesus is angry at the terrible results of sin in the world and of evil, that death even exists. It's the same sort of anger you feel when you read of a little boy who was beaten to death by his father or a child molested and sexually destroyed by some adult whom he trusted. It's a righteous anger. But anger isn't Jesus's only reaction. It says that Jesus asked where they had laid Lazarus. And as he started out to the tomb, it says that he wept. Actually, this word is not the same as the word which described the Jews in Mary's weeping just a few verses earlier. It's a word that literally means he broke into tears. He began to shed tears. He began to sob, I think, while walking to the tomb. His grief overwhelmed him because Jesus so sympathized with them that he broke into tears so that the Jews seeing him said, see how he loved him, meaning Lazarus. I think they misunderstood it. I mean, it's true, Jesus loved Lazarus, but he is not weeping for that. He's no, he knows he's on his way to raise Lazarus from the dead, so there's nothing for him to cry about about that. <clears throat> he knows that in a few minutes, this whole weeping crowd will be transformed into rejoicing people who can hardly believe what they see. And that Mary and Martha are going to have their dear brother back again in their arms. No, he knows that. He has no doubt of that. He's weeping because he's sharing their heartache. He's not immune or detached from their grief. You know, Buddhism teaches that inner peace comes through detachment. You end up just really not caring about anything, not letting anything affect you or reach you. Jesus was not that way. He embraced the pain of others. He actually entered into their pain. He allowed the pain of others to inflict pain in his own heart. Can there be anything more beautifully descriptive of the nature of Christ than this? He sympathizes with them. This is his wabi-sabi moment with them in this story. As we've seen so many other of these wabi-sabi moments, this is it where he enters into their brokenness. And it's a precious thing to have someone sympathize with us. In Romans 12, 15, Paul tells us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Here Jesus himself sets the example of this. Knowing that he's going to turn it all around, 
Yet he feels the sorrow of their hearts, and he weeps. And then we come to the actual miracle, verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor, for he's been there four days. And Jesus said, did I tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. There are still two obstacles remaining before Jesus can raise Lazarus. One is the stone, the physical obstacle. According to John's testimony here, the tomb was, was a cave. But if it's a traditional site shown to visitors in Bethany today, the tomb of Lazarus was not a horizontal cave, but a vertical one going down into the ground. Kind of a dungeon in which you descended by steps. The stone lay flat on the surface of the ground like a trapdoor. It may have been that, although, you know, you got to question some of these so-called traditional biblical sites. They're kind of tourist traps. And there are five places purported to be the birthplace of the Virgin Mary. So you always have to be a little suspicious about uh, the modern tourist uh, destinations. But whatever the nature of the cave, the stone was lying over it. Notice the Lord does not wave his hands, and the stone, stone doesn't levitate or doesn't vanish. This is what some, you know, super character of our day would do. But there is nothing of that. Jesus says to the people, take away the stone. There is always this remarkable combination of the divine and the human at work in our Lord's miracles. Remember how the disciples had to take the bread and distribute it, and then the miracle happened? And so it is with the people who removed the stone. There's some way in which they need to participate. And then there's still Martha's protest. Lord, don't do this. We'll all be, you know, there's going to be a stench. I love how the old King James Bible uh, translate this. They would say, he stinketh. They knew what death was back then. They weren't fooled by some trick. They knew the decomposition that happened with dead bodies. They knew the timetable. But notice how he answers. He does not rebuke her. He encourages her with the words, Remember what I said. The word of God removes this obstacle which her momentary doubt interjected. Remember what I said. Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Trust me. Boy, how many times does our faith need some remembering, some encouragement, some momentary word from the word of God itself to steady us and to keep us from faltering? This is what Martha needed. And Jesus now turns to do the great deed. He begins with a simple prayer. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you were always near me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may see that you sent me. Verse 43. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Notice the many times in this account that what Jesus did, he did for the sake of the people involved. Earlier, he said to the disciples, I'm glad I was not there for your sake. He stayed two days when he heard the message, and it says he did so because he loved Mary and Martha. It was for their sake that he waited. And now he prays out loud for the sake of the people there. He wants them to see that God the Father is involved with him in this. That he's not just some magic worker coming to astonish them, but this is God 
working through him. He calls on God to work, and then he has every assurance without the slightest doubt that he will. It's a simple prayer of gratitude, a wonderful expression, but spoken aloud to prove that God is behind him. And what a sight that must have been. The loud voice was not for Lazarus. He did not hear, need to hear any loud voice. When Jesus raised the young man in the village of Nain, he merely spoke to him. When he raised the daughter of Jairus, he spoke to her. Our Lord does not need to call out for some soul wandering out in the darkness somewhere in order to return him to the body. No, the loud voice was for the benefit of the people gathered, that they might hear that this is his voice that is summoning Lazarus from the dead. The personal name, of course, was meant for Lazarus. As it's often been pointed out, if Jesus had not said Lazarus, if he had not said Lazarus' name, had just called out for the resurrection, I mean, he would have emptied the cemetery. He needed to be specific. Otherwise, every grave would have opened. Every grave would have opened if Jesus had just said, come out. That's the power Jesus had. And that's the word he will give on that last day. Every grave will open at his command. He himself said so, chapter 5, verse 25. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. One day that voice will summon all the dead to rise and all of them will. But here only Lazarus is singled out. And Lazarus does come out. Life returns to his body. We do not know how. Not something I can explain. But as the onlookers breathlessly observed, suddenly a figure appears coming up out of the tomb. Bound in grave clothes, still wrapped in white with the napkin still around his head. Stumbling and staggering about, he looked like the proverbial mummy. Not exactly. The Jews didn't embalm and wrap a corpse like the Egyptians did, but they did wrap the bodies with spices for the very reason of masking the stench of physical decay. Remember the women who were going to Jesus' tomb on Easter morning? They were going there to finish the task of wrapping Jesus' body with spices. But here is probably good that it did not happen at night, or I think the people would have just run away screaming. Notice again the blending of human and the divine. Life is something God alone can give, but unbinding people is something we can do. So Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes, unbind him, and let him go. Now physical, physically, the burial wrappings were hindering Jesus from walking. Pretty simple. So the, uh, so the command to unbind him is just really something that's practical. But this also has become understood symbolically that Lazarus needed more than just breath back into his lungs. He needed the new life of Jesus. He needed the liberty. He needed the freedom of Christ in his heart. And that is what God puts in our hands to help nurture. We can't regenerate people. No one can. But we can help the life that they receive to be freed from the damage of the past. When the Lord regenerates a person's heart, he brings resurrection to a dead inner spirit. That is not something we do. Only Christ can regenerate, but God calls us to help these new disciples, to help with this new life. We can teach them the word that frees. We can show them the fellowship that encourages. We can help them take away the things that bind them. We can help them through their problems. And when Jesus brings a soul to life, he also says to us, loose him and let him go. 
So what does this miracle say to us today? The answer to that is given by the Apostle Paul in his second letter to Timothy. Timothy, you may remember, was a young man who had, he had, uh, who, who had left the who was left in the pagan city of Ephesus to help lead the church there. He had to struggle to live as a Christian in that polluted environment, just as we have to struggle in our society today. He was sometimes discouraged and defeated and facing many problems. He was a little afraid. He was timid. He was kind of frail of health. (coughs) And what were Paul's words to him? 2 Timothy 2.8. Remember Jesus, risen from the dead. Remember. Remember Jesus, right where you are. Remember he is alive. Remember he is with you. This is God's word to us. The glory of the good news is that he who was uh, with but a few people in the days of his physical life is now by means of the spirit with us, all of us, all the time. This week you're going back into problems. You're going to face them in your home, in your work, in your personal life. Some are going to struggle to avoid a temptation. Others are going to struggle to overcome a bitter spirit. Some of you may feel lonely or taken advantage of or cheated in life. (coughs) How are you going to face those problems? This is why the story is told to us, that we can remember that the one who is with us is the Lord of glory. He knows how to handle the situations we're going to face, whatever they may be. He knows how to lead us through it. Even if necessary, he can raise the dead or set aside the laws of nature to change things. He can do anything. (coughs) So focus your faith on him, not the solution to the problem or the eventual working out of things by normal circumstances, but just focus on Jesus, knowing that he can do amazing things right now. It's where John wants us to look, not at some program, but at Jesus, the person. I hope you have a great week. Take care.